Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. So I'm just going to dive right in. So tell us a little bit about the best bosses that you've worked for and some of the experiences that you've had with them. The best part, I think, of having experienced a a number of different styles and leaders is you can learn from them and you can sort of select what you're going to become as a leader. I think early in my career, I was fortunate because I had a boss who really took a lot of time with me to to teach me. We would spend literally hours in his office with him imparting his knowledge about the investment industry to me. So as a lawyer, it was important because I learned a lot more about the business, which makes you a better lawyer if you understand what your clients are experiencing and doing day to day. So absolutely, I would say mentorship and sharing knowledge those are traits, I think, of uh, of great leaders and, and great bosses. My best boss ever, I would say, sort of embodies all of that. And he was a very senior leader at BMO Nesbitt Burns, Bank of Montreal. He just was an incredible and is an incredible human being, just very kind, very experienced, always had your back. No matter what, what happened, he was he was in your corner and you knew that. So you could take some risks knowing that uh, that he was going to stand by you sort of thing. And he was known around the company as, as a leader that everybody wanted to work for. And so I always felt fortunate to be working for him and reporting to him. Uh, and, and people would always say, oh, you're so lucky. I wish I was working for him. <laughs> right. Yeah. He had that draw. So he had actually a magnetism where people were like, you're in a coveted position if you work for this boss. That's right. Absolutely. I was put in essentially as a, a turnaround situation. And getting ready for my first meeting was interesting. I had prepared a lot and was ready to talk about how we're going to turn things around. And when we got into the meeting, my voice was shaking. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I just thought, oh, goodness, because it, it was a pretty high profile, big meeting. And I, I pulled it together eventually, but obviously was nervous. And so after the meeting, I, I spoke to my boss and I said, sorry, you know, I, I, I don't know what happened there at the beginning, but, you know, I did turn it around. And, you know, he said something that really just made me feel good, which was, you know what? That's all. You're passionate about this. And, you know, you're not going to go into a meeting being a robot. You know, you're a human being coming in and, and expressing yourself the way you did showed that you cared. And, you know, it was it, that's just sort of what he was like. He, he always kind of found the good in anything and, and made you feel good. I benefited from him bringing me into settings and surroundings that I wouldn't naturally be in. And so when I talk about my passion for fine wine, it was Barry was a member of a nice golf club. You know, he himself is is very, very passionate about wine and very knowledgeable. So not just working for him or with him, but also just how he included me in certain events with his uh, wine group, for example, where he got to experience some, some fine wines that 
you know, I had never experienced before. And quite frankly, as, as, you know, a person of color, often I would be the only person of color at, at those events. But, uh, you know, that's something that I definitely also think I took from him, which was that, you know, when you have the ability to include people in things that they naturally may not have been part of and to help either educate them around it or if they're interested, you know, coax their interests. That's great. That's important. Yeah. Such a pleasure to look back over the years. I've had some incredible leaders throughout my career. So I'm just going to focus on a couple of key elements of a few that really stood out for me. They have really inspired and enabled greatness and supported me and their teams in building the conditions for our success and that of our teams and our colleagues. And the the first one that I'd like to start with is what I would call purpose-driven leadership. And I know purpose recently has gotten a lot of attention, but there are two leaders in particular that I worked with over the years that were masters at aligning the organization to purpose. Each of them had joined their organizations, and those organizations benefited significantly and surprisingly quickly from their immediate focus and sort of reattention on their own purpose, but also uncovering and recommitting to the purpose of the organization with the entire team. They also were then incredibly bold in leveraging purpose as a guiding light for strategy development and execution. They made very difficult decisions that were informed by this process and made investments in key areas that were required to live out that purpose. For both of them, status quo was not an option. And and I have to say, Christine, there was literally a buzz to the place in each organization that you could could feel. They Mm. essentially infused life back into the organizations. And it was because they cared so much about the critical importance of the work that they were leading. And I would say just, this is legacy work. Purpose-driven work becomes legacy work. And that's what I saw in these two leaders. And it was very inspiring. In each situation, they were passionate about essentially bringing attention back to what the point of the organization was Mm. and the impact that it would have. And in each situation, it was not about creating purpose. It was uncovering the original purpose of the organization and then recommitting to that purpose. And what it did was it created a really clear sort of decision factor. Everything became more clear, not necessarily more easy, but certainly more clear about what was required of the organization, where the resources needed to be, where the Mm -hmm. investments needed to be had, where shifts needed to be made, in order to have the impact that that organization was originally designed to have. I think it comes down to where you put purpose in the conversation. And it it is something that you can use as a guiding light. And so I think when you're asking yourself, is this aligned with purpose? It it makes it, again, really clear, but not necessarily easy. And Mm -hmm. so when you're having a conversation about how resources are to be invested in, that's a difficult conversation. But if we, if you keep the end in mind, are we ensuring that the organization is positioned in the best way possible to be able to deliver on what we say and what we agreed and what we've committed to with our, our purpose, then those hard decisions become 
more clear, not necessarily more easy, but they become more clear. And it is about paving a pathway forward. Mm -hmm. So it feels like it, it helps people when they're debating big, complicated decisions, like it helps create that center point or that referee, right? You come back Absolutely. to the... Yep. Yeah. And and a couple of, again, very high level examples, but in one organization, the decision to, to actually invest in a strategic plan at a time when the organization had a very uncertain future, there were a lot of points of view about that. And mm-hmm. some were thinking that maybe an investment wasn't the right way to go. But when we came back to purpose, the purpose was to ensure that the organization was the best positioned to be able to deliver on its purpose in whatever uncertain future it was. And so it really was the responsible decision to make sure that we were going to be able to essentially hand off the best organization possible for whatever sort of future was determined for it by making sure that we had done the work to actually prepare the organization to go through that process. Well, I had a number of great leaders throughout my career that I kind of took little bits of things from, but the one story that really stood out for me for someone that I worked with for a number of years, probably 15, 20 years ago, was someone who I actually didn't work for him initially. I worked in another role and I saw what he was doing, the team he was building up, and I thought, you know, he needs a certain role on his team. So I took a risk and I met him one day and I said to him, you know, I know you're building your team up and I think you need this role. Here's why you need this role. And I would love to take on that role. And initially he said, oh, okay. Um, Thanks for letting me know. And I thought, okay, well, that He didn't accept it right away. And I'm good with that. But a few months later, he came to me and said, Pam, you're right. We need this role and I'd love you to take it on. So what that meant for me was he was willing to take the risk on me. He saw something in me. He was curious about what I was going to bring to the role. And again, it it didn't happen right away. But he took a risk. I took a risk. And again, it didn't come to fruition immediately. And that's okay. And working with him, he allowed me to play big. And he allowed me the space to build the role and build my team. And uh, I was telling somebody this other story a few days ago about how I went to him and said, (laughs) someone on the team wants to buy pens. They want to buy a hundred pens. And I just want to know if it's okay if we go ahead and buy these pens. And he became curious and he said to me, okay, if you do this for this person, you're going to have to do it for this person and this person. And soon it kind of adds up. I'm like, okay, I've never thought of it that way. He said, just think about when you make these decisions, the ripple effect that it can have and think of all the different angles. Again, this is just a story about pens. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but as it kind of grew, I realized, okay, I need to think about this. And at the end, he said, you know, it's your decision, but really think it through. Again, he allowed me, he was curious. He allowed me to play in this space. He showed a lot of curiosity, which I think is very important in a leader. He was open to my ideas and it just, it gave me that confidence to 
play big, built my team. So when I talk about playing big, what that means is working with a great leader will give you confidence. My son's a hockey player. He was a hockey player. He's older now. He doesn't play anymore. But when he was playing hockey, he was a goalie. And we had a sports psychologist come and talk to his team. And he was fascinating. And he talked specifically about when you're a goaltender or a hockey player, when you have that confidence, you play big, you take up space. So you're more engaged in the game. You see the game clearer. And when you play big, you take risks. And again, it's that confidence and taking up the space and allows you for engagement and seeing things clearer. I was so intrigued by this sports psychologist. I said to him, will you talk to my leaders? Because a lot of what you're saying translates so well into leadership. And he did. And it was just fascinating how it translated back and forth between, I mean, that's not new sports psychology and leadership, but I truly have kind of taken everything I've learned from him as a psychologist into my leadership to allow others around me to, again, take risks, play big, be confident, be engaged, and see things clearer. There's no single one thing, really. There's, there's multiple reasons. I mean, I think first, you know, he's authentic. He's got a lot of integrity. He's got empathy. Those, those are kind of a few things. The other thing I would say, and really what I like about him is he's really got a relentless passion for the business. So he's just, you know, constantly engaged in the industry, what's going on, who's who, and how do we grow? So he's, you know, I'll say inspiring from that perspective. I think the other thing that I really like about Jason is he he's really good at empowering his people. He has a very, you know, real and genuine interest in them as people, um, as performers, of course, but but also as people. And then I'd also say he's he's someone who's very competitive. You know him. You've worked with him. He's got very much of a, a sports coach style to his leadership, which for me worked. And one of the things I like about that is it's a constant kind of challenge to push you past your limits. Certainly very supportive along the way, but it's that kind of coaching style that I think is what really drives me to, to working with them a second time. I'll start with the positive. I think, I think, you know, when you work with someone like that, you know, it feels less like work and more like a game, you know, a, a game that you want to win, not, not just for yourself, but because you don't want to let them down. So, you know, that part's fun and, and, and very motivating. I think, you know, as you know, and as you've seen, he's very candid, right? And he's going to challenge you when he sees something that he doesn't think is really kind of showing your best self to others. And so I'll tell you a story that's kind of a funny story is, you know, we get an opportunity to go to these industry events often and represent our company and our brand. I put our best foot forward at these conferences with you know thousands, ten thousands of people. I've been very fortunate that he sent me to many of those over the years, and there just happened to be one that took place in sunny Florida. And I would like to say, for the most part, I did a really good job of representing the group. But there was a, a little spot at lunchtime. There was a speaker that I had already seen, and so I thought it was a good opportunity for me to go for a little swim in the ocean. So. I put, you know, put on my bathing suit. I didn't think twice. I walked through the lobby and I went out, went for a swim, came back and went to the, uh, went to the rest of the session. Of course, I just happened to pass by a lot of senior executives from Philadelphia at the time, which quickly got back to Jason that, hey, did you know your guy was swimming midday? And so uh, <laughs> let's just say that was a much tougher conversation when I got back. He's like, really? What were you thinking? <laughs> um, you know, could you not have gone the other way or at least not done it at all? And so I think, you know, the, the challenge is a positive challenge that he's not afraid to kind of call you out. 
And I still get teased about that, despite the fact that that was almost seven years ago today. He still <laughs> challenges me publicly, right. teases me about that at that time. So every time he sends you to an industry event, he asks if everyone's going to see you in your bathing suit. <laughs> Absolutely. Did I pack my Speedo? I know. Should, should I be allowed to go? Uh, all those kind of things. He has fun <laughs> nice. at my expense, deservedly so. One of the things I've always said is, and, and one of the reasons I, I followed him is it's, you know, it's, it's uplifting to have a role model, like someone you respect, you, you admire, someone you strive to be like. And I think that's a perfect example, you know, when you ask about what's a meeting look like. I mean, first of all, if you're not five minutes early, you're late. If you don't have an agenda, there was no point in the meeting. If you don't have an actionable takeaway from that, that meeting that was obviously discussed and collaborated and challenged along the way, then it wasn't an effective meeting. And he's going to let you know that. And so I think, you know, that's what I see in meetings and all meetings is like, I can learn by example, because I know when he runs a meeting, he's going to be early. He's going to be coordinated. He's going to have input ahead of time. Any pre-work would have been done. And so he expects that of others. And I think, you know, I learned a lot from that is a, it's someone you want to emulate. It's a style that I think works. And I think it's important, particularly, you know, over the last couple of years to make sure that you're, you know, you're meaningful and you're concise and there's actionable ideas when you're going into a meeting, just don't meet for the sake of meeting. And I think uh, to me, that's what I've noticed when he runs a meeting, when he's a part of a meeting, it's always actionable. What are we doing? And why are we here? One person sticks out for me and it's because he is so people focused. Actually, to kind of pull on the thread of collaboration that you just mentioned, he does a lot to foster collaboration. But even more than that, he focuses on the individuals, right? And really thinks about people as people and people as humans and not necessarily just as employees. And for me, that's always really stuck with me. I would say one of the things that I've learned is the importance of democratic leadership. And it's something that I've personally adopted as well in different situations. And obviously you can't use that in every single situation. Sometimes you just need to make a decision and, and move on. But when you can use democratic leadership and get input from multiple people and understand multiple perspectives and get input from different parts of the organization and then come to a decision, I find it can do wonders at driving engagement, collaboration, alignment, cohesion within the organization. And something that this leader has done in particular, which I thought was super smart, was he implemented a reverse mentorship program. So it's a formal forum for rising stars to provide feedback and input on, you know, it can be specific programs within the organization. It can be priorities. If we're struggling with a specific problem, sometimes, you know, he'll throw it out to this table to get input from the what we call the leaders of tomorrow to get input from this leadership table and some really amazing, unique ideas come out of that table. And I think it's such a, a smart and inspiring way to, to approach the organization. I think something else that makes this leader really special and unique is his ability to believe in and empower people. I'll give you a, a personal example. I had witnessed this person doing a really great job at, you know, instilling confidence and seeing people's unique talents and other areas of the organization. But about three and a half years ago, I was leading our national corporate marketing team across the country, you know, really loved that job, had spent, you know, the, you know, first 15 or so years in my career, a 
building my craft in marketing communications and, and building out teams and, you know, had this career map in my mind kind of all laid out in terms of what my future would look like. And, you know, he came to me and asked me if I would consider changing directions and moving over to help build out our digital area of our business. And I thought, holy cow, this is silly. Like, I have no business, you know, building out digital. I don't have the deep technical knowledge that I thought was really important to be successful in that type of role. But, you know, he, he kind of said, well, I know that you can do this and I know that you have the transferable skills needed to succeed, right? You're great at problem solving. You're great at building teams. You have amazing resiliency. You know, you're good, sometimes too good at <laughs> pushing the envelope and wanting to do things differently, and and so he was able to see potential in me that I kind of overlooked myself, to be honest, right? And helped instill that confidence in me to do something different. And to be honest, that's been incredibly rewarding. Sure. So I actually started in November 2020, the height of you know the pandemic. I interviewed over Zoom. I actually didn't work in person with anyone on our staff until. I'm going to say six to eight months later, like once we all had had, you know, the vaccinations and it felt safe enough to get together. So even with those elements, I just felt like my onboarding and my my relationship, my connection with her and the rest of the team was just it was so much quicker than in other organizations. We just developed a rapport you know, really, really quickly. And I believe it's because she is such a good leader and so focused on communication and building this team. We actually all work remotely, the operations team. I think perhaps they didn't have such a bad adjustment to teleconferencing because, you know, we had those elements, but we hold really regular staff meetings. I have two meetings a week and she's really, really open to sharing information. I just feel like I have what I need to do the job that I was hired to do. So yeah, I guess that's <laughs> that's the first thing, just really excellent leadership. My first job was at a children's publishing company and I was like an illustration major just out of college. And after bumping around for a year, I decided I needed a job. I had been seeing art directors for illustration work and I sent out a, a whole bunch of letters, Xerox letters to the art directors I had met while I was looking for illustration work. And uh, this woman, her name is Barry, got in touch with me and said, hi, you know, you know, I remember sending out letters like this when I got out of school. So, so we sort of had a connection in that way. So she sort of guided me through the interview process. And, and it really wasn't much of a process because I was, I was a low-level designer. But she basically took me in, took me under her wing for a while, sort of really got me started in the design business. And, you know, showed me about like, scheduling, deadlines, what it was like to work as part of a team. And then just as, as everything was going really, really well, she left to go get another job. Oh, no. Right. Now, you would think that would be the end of the story. But we actually kept in touch for for a good 15, 20 years after that. We'd have lunch occasionally. She became something of a of a mentor to me. We became friends on a, on a certain level. And uh, down the road, she was able to give me some very important projects. She got a job with a, a huge uh, trade publication company. So... I was able to design several magazines for her. She actually gave me my first website job, job with a uh, a fabric company. And, uh, you know, she's basically trying to get them into the 20th century. So she she handed me their first major website. And I had been sort of fooling around with websites, as everybody did back then. This is sort of like in the 90s. Everybody was fooling around with websites. But she trusted me enough to hand me their first big web project. 
So in a sense, she gave me two first jobs. You know, she gave me my first real job in the business, and then she sort of launched my web career with that job. I think all of us wanted to become him. He actually made, he's one of those people who made sales management look attractive because he was so good at it. He almost made it look easy. And as you and I both know, and I'll tell you about my worst boss ever, it's not easy. <laughs> That's right. It's not easy. So so, so he, he really had us motivated because I think all of us wanted to replace him. I think most of us could have been candidates for that. And the other thing I, you know, it's it was a while back now, Christine, but one of the things I do know is he took those opportunities to make it about me, ah. not about him. And, you know, it wasn't hard for him to assess somebody like me was ambitious. So I think he was quite intentional about talking about career progression and next steps and the opportunity and all those kinds of good things. Because he was kind of this role model on a couple of different fronts where I might have looked at it being 10 years his junior and said, most of those things look pretty good to me, the way this guy's got it all sorted out. So I, I think, you know, he he spent enough time thinking about that. The other thing I, I think, given what I've done since there and some exposure, he actually was a nice person. And when you get to your stage of your career, my stage of my career, there's kind of a no jerks allowed policy in life now. There's talented people out there that are jerks. They can't come anywhere near in the funnel and we won't work for them either. Right. So based on the way I'm built, I'm not looking for my boss to be my friend or best friend, but I actually have to have respect that he's a good person or she's a good person. And for the most part, I've been really blessed in my career having lots of bosses and they were all good people. And if they weren't, by the way, I just walked out the door which I've done too. So when you've worked for a not best boss, <laughs> one that maybe wasn't as inspiring for you, what were the kind of things that happened? Again, share some examples and some stories, but what what didn't work for you personally? One boss in particular, and I won't say the name, was somebody who no matter what you did would make you feel like you did something wrong. <laughs> and even uh, you know, even if it was right, you squirmed because you thought, oh boy, you know, he's going to come at me with this or that. And you never felt like you were on the same side. It, it really felt like you were being grilled for a reason. And, you know, in particular, one of my colleagues made a call and, and actually made the wrong call. And he called the entire department in and berated her for having made the call she made. And there was an economic impact due to the call that she made. And, and basically, he said, you're going to be paying that back. And, you know, she was more of a junior person. And so those of us who were maybe a little more senior kind of stepped in and said, come on, that's, you know, that's, that's not right. Uh, we're a team, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that would happen. And it was, it was a, it was essentially a toxic environment and you could hear him sometimes, you know, with the door closed, basically yelling at some of your colleagues and it was not a good environment at all. So I would say, you know, that's sort of the exact opposite, which is rather than always feeling like, your your boss has your back. In that case, it was, you know, you were scared. You walked around on eggshells. Like you said, it's almost the opposite. You're waiting for your boss to stab you in the back. <laughs> that is exactly right. <laughs> right? The look over your shoulder at all times. The hard part for somebody who has a boss who's insecure is that sometimes, you know, your boss 
because they're insecure and maybe don't feel confident in their position, they want more control. And so that's a difficult situation because they do like to control information. Haven't had many. I've only, I've had more great bosses than not great bosses, but one that comes to mind was again, early in my career, very early in my career was someone who kind of tried to hold on to the information and the power. And, you know, when you think of the theory of abundance and the theory of scarcity, he operated from theory of scarcity where he felt there wasn't a lot of power, so I need to hold on to it. And I learned a lot that there's enough to go around for everybody. The theory of abundance is there's enough power, influence, whatever, to go around. That was a, a big learning for me. There was two of them that came to mind. And they both had that trait was that theory of scarcity and didn't believe around multiplying the people around them. This is a, a tricky one. I've been fortunate where I've worked with a lot of amazing people. But I would say if, you know, you have a day that was less than awesome, like there were kind of common themes, right? And it typically would come down to like not feeling respected, either not being respected for, you know, ideas and contributions, not feeling like your time is being respected, not feeling like your values are being respected, you know, not feeling like I was being respected as a human being. So it's almost the opposite of what I described previously in terms of not feeling seen or respected. You know, a simple one because I touched, it's not really simple, but because I touched on it earlier would be the the listening. But I think being people-oriented, not task-oriented, right? And so task-oriented for me would be, you know, focused on the, the outcomes, focused on the deliverable, which are absolutely important. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> absolutely important. But focusing on the task without focusing on the people, that's I find where the respect boundaries can get a little bit blurry, right? Where, you know, if someone, for example, has a personal boundary, right? Or they have a personal commitment. And if it's only task focused, outcome focused, somebody might overlook that unintentionally to your point, unintentionally overlook that. And that's where I find, you know, you know, feelings could get hurt, values could get stepped on, et cetera. I'll start with the simple one. I'll do first names only because it's a small street and a small industry. We'll just say his name. His name is James. But long story short, I worked for a company once and, and, and very briefly, and you'll probably understand why shortly. And I think I was the second week on the job and it was the morning kickoff meeting. This boss particularly said, oh, it's time for Offside Friday. I was like, offside Friday, what? British background. Let's just say he spent the next 20 minutes telling a bunch of extremely offside jokes. I could see the discomfort around the room, especially among the younger folks, especially among the younger female folks in particular. And it was just like, are you kidding me? Never mind in any time frame, but in this day and age, this was about 10 years ago, just not appropriate. That same boss called me the following Friday where we were doing a sales meeting at 11 a.m. And he was called in remotely. He wasn't there physically. So he kicked off the call. He ran the call. He's very eloquent in the call. But right after the call, he called me. He said, okay, get the troops together, come to the bar. I'm like, come to the bar. It's 11 a.m. He says, yeah, I've been at the bar all night. I haven't been home and I've got a motivational speech I want to give the folks. And I said, I, I said that's a horrible idea. Uh, I can still <laughs> tell that you've got, uh, you know, you're, you're some beverages. Let's just you. say you're under the influence. You know what? You work for me. Bring the team. 
okay, against my advice, I, I took the team there and it did not go well. I mean, he did not set a good example for what a leader should look like, right? He disheveled, you know, red faced, uh, so on and so forth. And so worst boss ever. I only stayed in that job for six weeks. Definitely not a fit. Six weeks. Uh, anybody that, six weeks, six weeks. It's not even on the resume. Six weeks. I had to get out of there. Amazing. So one of the questions that I always love to ask in my world Obviously, companies have to invest in their people in order to help build up this type of talent. And the question that comes up over and over again is, what is the return on investment? So if you had to quantify, if you can, I I love to ask this question because most people count, but if you had to quantify what the impact is of working for a best boss ever on the business, on the numbers, what would you say? There's a lot of intangibles there, right? And, And it's hard to actually point to a bottom line impact of great leadership. I mean, I think I, I think all of the things we've talked about just sort of make for a better environment for, for people to, you know, w- work as a team to build a better business and service clients better. And ultimately that translates to bottom line, I think. I, I'm not sure there's a direct way to measure it. It's just something I think that we know it's it's an intuitive thing. The leaders that I've been able to work with are are quite high level, and and so their impact has been incredibly wide and deep. And in in two instances, they were able to show that in fact one person can spark a huge shift in culture. They can't do it alone, but they can certainly spark it. And I think that, and then seeing just the feeling, the buzz in the organization completely shift from an energy perspective, it's palpable. Like you don't need to have measurements to experience it, but obviously measurement is really important. And I think, you know, what, as we've gone through what we're calling the great resignation or, or whatever way you prefer to reference it, the bottom line is that we're not getting engagement and resilience and trust Right. And and I think that's one of the things that I would point to that leaders really need to be aware of and engaging with. And I'll, I'll refer to an article that I think is really compelling that's out of ADP Research Institute and Marcus Buckingham's associated with a lot of that work. And if you haven't read his book, Love and Work, it's a collaboration with Harvard Business Review. You can also see uh, an article in that magazine about it. It is profoundly impactful, but they did the study in 2018 with 19,000 workers in 19 countries. And the results are shocking. And this was pre-pandemic. The pandemic actually dropped the scores by 2%. So really quickly, I'll go through them. Only 18% of workers are fully engaged, which means that, and now that's 16% which means that there are 84% of your workforce population that are less than fully engaged. Right. Only 17% feel highly resilient, which means that 83% do not. What does that matter? That means turnover. That means absenteeism. That means hard to hire because you've got so many, so many open spaces. Another one that I thought was really interesting, which is 14% of these workers trusted their team leader 
and their senior leader, 14, which means that 86% of our workers don't trust their team leader and their senior leader, which has huge implications to innovation, to commitment to the organization, whether they'll stay, whether they'll go. And we know that one quarter of, of U.S. workers quit their jobs in 2021, which is a historic high. So I, I would say, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Every, every single leader should be aware of these numbers and developing strategies to ensure they make a significant positive impact on their teams. And, and best bosses are in the game. You know, they're great leaders. They're developing environments and culture in which their team members are fully engaged. They're highly resilient and they have trust in their leaders and teams. I mean, Christine, there's a very high positive correlation with, with strong leadership and results. I think it starts from, from recruiting. You know, people want to work for people with good reputations. I mean, a current example is the team that he's built here at TDS Management. You know, these are veterans that probably had the choice of multiple places and they decided to come to TD, mainly for him first, for the firm second. So I think that helps. You can see that on, on the recruiting side to attract high-performing talent. The second is retention. He really is, and I think any great leader is really a developer of people, and they take more pride in the success of others than they even do in the success of, of their own. So, you know, that's kind of like that winning mindset is if others win, you know, we're going to win. And so from my experience with him and other great leaders, he's always hit and exceeded targets from doing it from an established organization to a startup to turnarounds. I think it's that winning mentality. It's that empowering of others. Like I said, two different places, very lofty goals and obviously hitting it or exceeding those targets. So it's nothing but a positive impact on, on the bottom line, the metrics and results. And, you know, leadership also with great leadership comes less disruption because you've got a higher retention. You've got a better pipeline of recruits and you've essentially got people that are more comfortable with working with each other because they know they can obviously succeed in, in that environment. So in terms of quantifying it, I'll, I'll do it softly <laughs> that way. Like I will say, you know, our organization has had unprecedented growth and not only have we had unprecedented growth over the past few years under this person's leadership, you know, it's been through a pandemic, right? So this person has the ability to put out, you know, what sometimes can appear to be an unachievable vision and motivate people to achieve it, which I think is, is pretty amazing. Something else that personally really speaks to me, my values is we have made tremendous advancements when it comes to DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of how we think about our organization, how we think about treating each other again as human beings within the organization and really challenging each other around some of our assumptions or around some, you know, behaviors that we didn't even realize, you know, we were doing or doing it intentionally. So, and I don't know if that would have happened if we didn't have somebody like this leader, you know, helping to really move the needle. We've made, again, tremendous strides when it comes to how we think about mental health and how we approach mental health and the programs that we have for around mental health within the organization. And it's not just, you know, we have a chief mental health officer, we have a chief diversity and inclusion officer. It's much bigger than that in terms of embedding these things into our culture and in to how we approach our work in each other every day? Well, I think that I am 100% focused on helping to improve the organization. I don't have to spend any time at all 
sort of doing like a, a mind scramble of what exactly did we say? Did we communicate that right? Or is there information I'm not being told? And right. none of that. It's it's it it just feels very clear. So we can kind of literally get down to business when we're talking. Um, we have fun together. I really enjoy her. I think she enjoys me as a person. And yeah, I, I feel more motivated. I, we just, we want this organization to right. succeed. We're, right. on, we're on the same team. And sometimes I think you don't always feel like you're on the same team. If I have a great sales leader, then that person, she's going to make the team of eight salespeople better across the board. So it's just pure leverage. So I'm going to get that whole team to be better. And by better, I mean, they perform at a higher level, they're engaged, they're learning, they're dynamic, as a result of which they make for a better business culture. It just has this ripple or domino effect the whole way down. The opposite is also true. So the worst boss at that executive team level also has a domino effect on their eight to 10 direct reports. Those and so on and so forth. Now, those people are unpleasant to deal with within the organization. They stay within their job descriptions. They're not really engaged with the company. They don't want the company to do well. And so it becomes this other thing, the spiral of doom. So they they multiply that kind of toxicity across eight people, right? They do. Liz Wiseman multipliers. That's the return on investment. You know, you either have somebody who's diminishing the capabilities of everybody on the team, or they're multiplying them and it just becomes exponential. That's what I, I, I really think it is. Christine, if I'm looking for a CEO today, if I am the CEO, I'm looking for teammates who are those best bosses and the, the domino effects, the positive domino effects on performance, culture, retention, engagement, all of those things client satisfaction. I think there's an absolutely direct correlation to all that stuff. If you had to teach or advise future leaders on how to be a best boss, what would you encourage them to focus on? And, and any other tips or tricks that you've really seen in your career that help make leaders great? Because the audience that listens to this show are people that are really sharpening the saw to be those best bosses. I actually had somebody tell me early in my career that it's important to listen. Uh, that kind of always stuck with me. And so I think active listening is an important skill set. Not everybody has it. I think it kind of goes hand in hand with taking an interest in the people that you work with and understanding their motivations, understanding what drives them in life, you know, what makes them happy, what makes them unhappy. And so I think that is an important trait to, to develop, you know, your active listening skills. Sort of beyond that, I, I guess, you know, the other part of it that maybe goes with that is, is the empathy, right? We, we all know that there are tough decisions that have to be made in business from time to time, but, you know, you, you can always do things um, in an empathetic way. And I think as we started the conversation, you know, you have to remember, look, we're all human beings. We're all people with feelings. And I think it's important to respect those. I kind of narrowed it down to not three, which is, is the rule, but two, two, three, and then two extras. So the first one I would say is what exactly what we were talking about. Create a psychologically safe environment for everyone. Encourage people to say hard things versus just saying or doing things that make you feel good as the leader, because a lot of people are telling leaders what they want to hear, which is in my opinion, a risk gateway and a major barrier to innovation. So that would be number one. 
Number two is to intentionally create a team that is diverse and inclusive uh, with a culture of belongingness and trust in which everybody has a unique contribution to the team and then supporting them to leverage that uniqueness in really powerful ways. And I think that's the whole idea of a team is that we don't have all the same expertise. We don't have the same knowledge. We also have the same things that we love to do that really light us up and, and, you know, when we're in the zone. And so that's a, a way that a team can really learn to leverage each other. And third, I would say to really understand and embrace the power of connection, creating rapport with your team, getting to know what makes them tick, the things they love to do most in their current role, what they love to do more of. Marcus Buckingham calls them red threads in his new book. Gay Hendricks calls it the zone of genius. So helping your team members to look for ways to accomplish their goals while spending more time in these flow states in which they'll be happier, they'll be more resilient, they'll be more productive, more innovative, and engaged. First bonus is really the power of a strong network. This is, people get very focused on networking. And I think the way to reframe that is to really think about a powerfully strong network. It's not about just going out and meeting people. It's about understanding that good leadership is a team sport and success comes from knowing who, not how. That one for me has served powerfully. And then the last one is to lift heavily as you climb, always looking for meaningful ways to pay it forward. And I think this one I've seen more and more from what I would say are are less traditional leaders who are breaking the status quo, who are being their own unique selves, who are able to be role models for others to sort of see it and be it. And one of the things they're doing is lifting heavily as they climb. And I think that that is the true mark of a great leader and a great boss. It is about people like looking, having a clear vision of the organization and caring about the org. When you care about the organization We talk often at MD about being purpose-driven and bringing value to the client. The bottom line is, can be short-term. As leaders, we need to look further out and look longer-term. And when you have great leaders, that's what they will do. They will be constantly looking up, looking at the longer-term, ensuring that we have a long-standing, viable organization and not short-sighted, right? When you're looking, anything you do, when you look right in front of you, driving. So I just learned to drive a motorcycle. (laughs) And when I took the course, it was like, they kept saying, look up, look up. So it's always about looking up and looking out. And great leaders do that. And that's, you know, what comes down to the ROI. It's not, again, that short-term. One of the leaders at MD management would always say, as a leader, it's like a sailboat. You're looking out onto the horizon. You're looking longer term to get to the destination you want to get to. So great leaders are always, again, looking up, looking out, and that will get you to where you want to be. I always say, be yourself. You do you better than anyone does you. Like I, you learn things from all your bosses as you go forward and you develop your leadership style. But that's the advice I've given to a lot of leaders along my journey is be yourself. Don't try and be me. Don't try and be Barack Obama. Don't try and be someone else because that's where the genuineness 
of leadership comes in is when you're, you're true to yourself. And again, setting expectations with your individuals to say, here's how we, how do you like to work with me? What do you like to see? Like getting feedback, being curious, asking those questions of your teams. You're not the subject matter expert and the way they do something may not be the way you do something. So a story around that is I had one of my leaders come to me recently and he said, I want to move this person into this role. And my first reaction was like, no, oh, that, that's going to be a huge mistake. You know, and I'm thinking that in my mind, I didn't say it. I'm like, okay, tell me about, you know, what you've gone through. We've had some issues with this person in the past. And he went through, you know, here's the feedback we've given him. Here's what we're going to do, like to develop him going forward. Here's why I want to put him into this role. And I thought, wow, like he's really done his work. He's thought this through and he truly believes in this decision. So I said, okay, you know, not what I would have done, but I think you're making a great decision and I, I support you on this decision. So I think he was a little taken aback. He's like, Okay. And I said, no, you've done everything that I think you needed to do. In the end, it is your decision, but I will support you on this decision. Absolutely. I mean, I think lead by example is so important. So first know that people are are watching and looking up to you and are going to catch on whether you're, you know, offside Fridays and or whether you're, you know, running effective, efficient meetings and empowering your people. So I think that that's first and foremost. I think the other thing today, you know, people are, are looking for leaders that are really focused on, you know, what's good, what's right and just for everyone. So someone whose like decisions and actions are, are good for society as a whole. So not just for themselves, but also for their companies, also for the greater society. And so whose actions are guided by values and morals. I think that's becoming you know, more and more important as we grow as a society and as we focus more on doing what's right. And one of the questions that came out to me that I thought was really important is that every leader should really ask ourselves, when I'm thinking about a great leader, would I, would I want this person to be my child's first boss. So I think I have two daughters, as you know, right? One's 15 and one's 12. And so I think about, would I want this person to be their boss? Are they going to help provide that role model and that inspiration and the the challenges that I think they need to to grow and be successful? And so I think as a leader, if we all ask that question, would, you know, my best friend or would this colleague be thrilled that this person is working for me? I think that would make sure we've got our, our moral compass in line and we're there to help develop and encourage that development. This is tricky because I, I am still on my own journey <laughs> to be the best boss, right? As I think many of us are, right? I don't think it's ever something that you, you know, you get that, you know, report card where you're finally the best boss, right? I think we're always kind of learning and growing and, and developing and trying to get better over time. But um, a few things have stuck with me. So one, I would say kind of lead with empathy and be human centric because like at the end of the day, we're all humans, right? And and consider that whole person and not just the employee. He kind of says kind of almost humorously sometimes, but it really sticks with me is he talks about leaving positive cookies, right? And so, and what he means by positive cookies is like always leave somebody with something positive from the interaction, right? Like whether it's a word of encouragement or a compliment or, you know, advice or guidance, or even a link to an interesting article, right? But just think about leaving a positive cookie and something positive about the interaction so that they'll, they'll kind of leave the conversation, 
you know, energized and and have that positive frame of mind. So that's always really stuck with me. And that's something actually this leader has been excellent at is um, just bringing a sense of humor to interactions. You know, he's, he's very, and this is, this is hard given some of the, you know, tricky situations, but, you know, no matter how serious the topic or how tricky the situation or, you know, the severity of the problem, he'll, find a way to make people smile, right? And and just add a little bit of humor and, and positivity or, or focus on, you know what? Yes, like this thing, and these are my words, he would never say it this way, but this thing really sucks, yeah. right? It's hard, <laughs> it sucks, yeah. Yeah. but, you know, we're going to get it to a better place. You know, there's a better future. There's this positive outcome, this positive silver lining. So really thinking about, the positive aspect of things and having more of an optimistic frame of mind. For me, I start there. So I will always look to make sure that I'm building trust with people and that my team knows that whatever I'm doing, it's in the best interest of, you know, for both of us as an employee, employer, the customer, what have you. And so for me, it's really starting with the foundation of trust, but I would just go one step further and say like, okay, that's, you know, inherently there. I think I do a pretty good job with the people I've worked with, but where I really feel like I'm zeroing in now to take that to another level is, is in feedback, because I think that feedback is just such an incredible gift. And when I really think about the bosses that I've talked about in the past, um, it wasn't just the trust. When I think really deeply, it was that there was conversations and feedback that I could build off of, and that made me a better person. And so that's what I'm trying to emulate in my world now is making sure that when I talk to people, my employees and colleagues, that I'm very curious, ask a lot of questions, but with the intent that I can give them feedback that will take their work just to the next level. When I'm doing feedback, First and foremost, I try to do it as soon as possible. I don't like to wait. I think it diminishes the quality of the feedback if you wait too long. You know, we have, you know, touch bases with our people, you know, scheduled weekly or biweekly. And, you know, do you really wait five, seven, 10, 12, 14 days to give that? So I usually try to give it as soon as possible. And it usually just starts with uh, like, hey, do you have two minutes to chat about that, that thing, that presentation or whatever, you know, whatever it is that I observed. So I do try to just kind of jump in because it feels for me. And I think for the the recipient, it feels really natural when you do it right there. And then I heard a really good metaphor used around conflict recently. And I think of it similar to feedback, but they were talking about conflict and making conflict more like flossing and less like a root canal. And it's become one of my favorite metaphors lately, more like flossing and less like a root canal. So I I think of feedback and just what you're saying about feedback. What if we were delivered feedback on a more regular basis? And so these broccoli between our teeth conversations are more like flossing and less like a root canal. Flossing instead of a root canal. I'll have to tell my team that one when I get back to the office. (laughs) Which is where that regular, just like you said, giving real-time feedback And giving it frequently is really the inspiration of flossing, right? It's that idea of saying, I'm going to talk about these things in small bite-sized pieces on a regular basis instead of waiting till the year end and delivering the root canal. (laughs) Right. But even better is if I use that analogy now with some of the people I'm struggling with, if I tell them that story, I can actually just say, hey, can we go floss? (laughs) Like, 
it's like giving, it's almost like the permission to let's go have this conversation. I should just preface that too, that like not all feedback is negative. Sometimes it's really great. So right. I might not, I might say to them, Hey, we'll use the flossing analogy when it's like, it's a do better feedback. Right. right. And then that, that intros it as a, Hey, I got some tough stuff for you to hear. If you want to hear more, join me at christineleperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.